He was just practicing. <laughs> Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. This morning we have a text that I'm sure will be very exciting for many of you. You've probably been waiting in anticipation for our first genealogy. Genealogies. The genealogy of the Son of God. A full 15 verses in Luke's Gospel chronicling the genealogy of Jesus. But I trust that as we study this passage, as we read this passage, that we will find that it is not for nothing that God has included it in his word. <laughs> Excuse me. I got like a mute button. Okay. Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. We'll begin by reading it, and I'll give you a tip. Whenever you've got a list with a bunch of names, as long as you sound confident, people will think you know what you're talking about. <laughs> no, no, it's true. And if you can throw in a guttural or some sort of... <sighs> Then you really sound, um, really sound, well, because these are transliterations of Hebrew names in Greek. We're not even close, but we're going to read through this. This is God's word, Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. Let's begin by reading it now. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elis, Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mathathias, the son of Semain, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanna, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of El Madam, the son of Er, the son of Yeshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melei, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Natan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashan, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jehob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, 
the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. I tried to make it through. I got stuck up on one or two of them, which is, which is difficult not to do. We have here 77 names. 77 names tracking Jesus back to Adam and to God. It's a full genealogy, probably the fullest genealogy in the Bible. And yet, if you're anything like me, when you do, I don't know if anyone here does Bible reading programs. I recommend them. But I know that when I'm doing my Bible reading program, I, I start to dread the mornings in March when we're getting to the first eight chapters of 1 Chronicles. If you've done a Bible reading program, you know what I'm talking about. Because the first eight chapters of 1 Chronicles are that and nothing but that. And quite frankly, just to a casual reading, it is challenging to get much edification out of it. I, I do believe there's things there. That, that, that admission is an admission of my weakness, my frailty, not the text's problem, my problem. But if you're anything like me, you read a list like this and you sort of say, phew, glad I'm through that. And then Chronicles gives you seven more chapters. You know, you're not, we're not done yet by a long shot. And part of that is I think we don't understand the purpose of genealogies. Genealogies are not a big deal as, as much as they once were in our country. We live in a very individualistic age, and we, we like to th- consider and believe that our ancestors don't define us. We are individuals. We don't have much by way of history. I mean, I know you think we do, but you can go to Europe where there are buildings that are older than our country. Um, considering some of the, the, the worldwide countries, we don't have a ton of history. Um, and, and so we don't generally make a big deal out of genealogies. If we do, it's a, it's a novelty. It's something of interest. It's something you might do because you're bored. And yet the scripture is littered with them, and they're, they're greatly important. And so what we're going to try to deal with is the genealogy of the Son of God this morning. Why is this here? If, if all of Scripture is profitable, if all of Scripture is valuable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training of righteousness, what do we do with texts like this? What do we make of them? Now, before we get to the genealogy, I, I just want to deal with some points from verse 23. Um, in the structure of Luke's gospel... What we've got is the, the prologue, if you read books, what we've got is the prologue in the first two chapters. That's the, the parallel accounts of the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, and the announcement of the birth of Jesus, the, the meeting of the two mothers, the birth of the Baptist, the birth of Jesus. That's the prologue. Then we, we jump to the introduction of the book. The introduction, I'd say, would be probably chapter three, and then the book itself really begins the narrative in chapter four. And in three, John the Baptist is in view, in full ministry, and then he's gone. And then Jesus is introduced, and verse 23 tells us that what we just saw last week, the passing of the baton, John the Baptist's big moment in the sun, he's there and he's preaching and he's calling all men to repentance for the remission of sins, and then he points to Jesus and Jesus is baptized, and the Father testifies, this is my beloved Son in whom I will pleased. The Spirit descends upon him like a dove, all three members of the Trinity simultaneously functioning. And then John's off the stage. And verse 23 picks up, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, having been the son, as was supposed to Joseph, 
And so we are to understand in Luke's gospel that Jesus' baptism and the the receiving of the Holy Spirit for power is the beginning of his formal ministry. He he did other things. We have the record of him in the temple, him being presented. But Jesus, as regards to his prophetic ministry, his his ministry as the Messiah, the, the Messiah, the anointed one, well, that anointing, we just saw when the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And he's beginning his ministry. This is the formal beginning. The story's about to begin. And then, like most of the stories in the Bible, it begins with genealogy. That's how Matthew's gospel begins. Chapter one, genealogy. So we've had the prologue, the introduction, and we're here at the end of the introduction. Next week, we'll start chapter four. The, the actual, as it were, the beginning of the story after the prologue and the introduction. So Jesus' baptism inaugurates him, inaugurates the beginning of his ministry. Which is a similar theme, by the way, with with Luke's gospel. Jesus also inaugurates his church and he inaugurates his disciples with that same receipt of the Holy Spirit. At the end of Luke's gospel, we read in chapter 24, 46 to 49, he said to them, thus it is written, here's Luke's great commission, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So in the same way that Jesus receives the Holy Spirit to give him power for his ministry, Jesus tells his disciples, you've got a worldwide mission to accomplish, but tarry, stay, until you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we we follow in his footsteps just as our Lord and Savior fulfilled his calling and task, his work through the power of the Holy Spirit, so we will follow suit in the work that God gives us relying on God's Spirit. And second, I I love how Luke says Jesus was about 30 years of age. And this is, by the way, another sign of trustworthiness of an author. Luke, who's been incredibly detailed. Luke, who can give us in this reign when this person was the high priest and his cousin, and he goes through it. But when he doesn't know something specifically, he doesn't bluff. Somehow in Luke's research, the closest he can get to is Jesus was about 30 years of age. And he doesn't bluff. He admits it. And again, that that causes me to, to trust an author when they're willing to recognize there are things they don't know. There's something significant, though, about Jesus being 30 years of age. First off, it's the age that Joseph was when he became ruler in Pharaoh's court. But more significantly than that, in Numbers chapter 4, we read this. Moses writes, Take a census of the sons of Korah from among the sons of Levi by their clans and their father's houses from 30 years old to 50 years old, all who can come on duty. To be an active priest in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple, you had to be 30 years of age. So this is the minimum 30 to 50 were the years of service in the tabernacle than the temple. And so Jesus is 30 years of age. Even more significantly, according to 2 Samuel 5, 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years so Jesus is old enough in the view of the public to function as a priest. He's old, the same age as his, great, as his lesser father, David. Jesus is 30 years of age. The point being, no one can challenge him based on immaturity. In the culture that he's around, he is fully of age to serve and function in the community, in the religious settings. He's the same age of great King David when he began to rule. And so Luke gives us this information. 
And then we get 77 names. And the bulk of our time this morning will be spent, what, what do we do with this? Now, if you think about it, what we just left last week was in celebrating the deity of Jesus. Because what does the Father testify when Jesus is baptized? We talked about this, lest anyone think Jesus is personally coming, repenting of his own sins. Because remember, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance from sin, and Jesus comes out and he gets baptized, lest anyone think, oh, this man must be a sinner. The Father from heaven gives public testimony. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And in doing so, he, he names Jesus as his Son, which is a claim to deity. Jesus has already called God his Father. We've just seen the, the deity of the Messiah, and now we get the genealogy of the Son of God. How, how does a person who is God have a genealogy? And that is part of the amazing truth of the incarnation, that Jesus is fully God. He's fully a man. He is the Son of God, and he's got ancestry. <laughs> he's got ancestry. And Luke divides us up through 77 names, seven groups of 11. And we will begin to dive in now looking at this text. Point number one. Biblical genealogies are greatly important. Biblical genealogies are greatly important. They're very significant. And we've we got to stop and think that through because in our own life, they're not. Most of us here probably couldn't name much further back than our great, great, maybe our great, great, great grandfather and grandmother. If you were a Jew living in Jesus' day, that wouldn't be the case. Um, these, these are matters of public record. The scripture is littered with genealogies. Why is that? Well, before we even dive into our points, let's make an obvious assumption here. The Bible, again and again and again and again, emphasizes and insists these are real people. These aren't legends. We, we don't have there once was a man, a long time ago, once upon a time. At every point, the scripture is linking this to real history, real people, people that archaeology is confirming existed and lived and Luke here is tying in Jesus' birth to that line of history all the way back to the beginning. These were real people, real events. These aren't fanciful stories. This isn't, again, as I've said before, this isn't first and foremost a way to live your life or a way to look at the world. These are historical facts. Luke is writing so that Theophilus will be certain of the things of which he has heard. And part of what Luke's writing for him to be certain about is that they happened, that they're real. Part of what God wants you to be certain of is that they're real. They happened. Why else are genealogies important? Well, point A, they are used to introduce, they introduce major characters in the text. They introduce major characters in the text. So you can turn with me quickly back to Genesis chapter 5. And before Noah gets introduced, we get the genealogy from Adam to Noah in chapter 5. Of Genesis. So Noah, who's a major character in the story, gets introduced with a genealogy. So chapter 5, we won't read it, but chapter 5 is the genealogy from Adam to Noah, and then we begin the story of Noah, which starts in chapter 6 with the sinfulness of man and God's decision to destroy the earth. But Noah gets set up with a genealogy. Turn, turn a few pages over to chapter 11. And you, if your Bible has headings, you'll see how chapter 12 starts. The call of Abraham. And chapter 11 ends with a genealogy that ends at Abraham. 
Abraham is introduced to our story with a genealogy. And if you keep reading through the Bible, you'll see again and again and again the major characters get introduced, set up with genealogies. If you're important, in other words, we want to know where you came from. If you're important, we want to know your historicity. We want to know who your parents were. That's the assumption in the text. Who's more important than Jesus? And so Luke gives us his genealogy. Of John the Baptist, we're simply told both of his parents were Levites, and and he leaves it at that, gives us their names. But Jesus gets a full genealogy because he is an important, the important figure of Scripture. He also gets the fullest genealogy that I'm aware of in the Bible. Secondly, genealogies functioned as a public record of tribal and family identity, a public record of tribal and family identity. Remember, Israel is divided up into 12 tribes. Only the Levites could serve as priests. The kings were supposed to come from Judah. What, what tribe you're a part of was important. If you've read through Joshua, you'll know that another portion of Scripture that can sometimes be challenging to read are the 20 or so chapters in Joshua of the land divisions. To this tribe, they received such and such a land to this border, and just 20 chapters of that. But the reason is God gave Israel the land, and he assigned the land to various families and tribes, and you could never fully sell the land outside of the family or the tribe, because every year of Jubilee, it reset. You could only in function rent the land till the next year of Jubilee. And so knowing what family, what tribe you're a part of mattered because it, 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 it gave you your home territory, your homeland within the land. And these are a matter of public record. The Jews kept these in the synagogues and the temple and until 70 AD, they had firm records. And one of the significant factors, that, this is an argument from silence, but one of the significant factors of authenticity for Jesus and his ministry is that his opponents never challenged him on the title Son of David. They never challenged him on that. They accepted it. And I think the reason for that is they could have gone and checked. People probably would have gone and checked Joseph and Mary's lineage. Now, there seems to be some awareness of the virgin birth because in John 8, they accused him of being born of immorality. Of course, the unbelievers didn't think he was born of a virgin. They just thought that Mary had, uh, you know, had a little liaison before she married Joseph. And they say, we're not born of immorality like you. So they would, they would throw that in his face. No one ever challenged him with his title of being son of David or when others would call him son of David. The assumption being that they couldn't disprove it. These are publicly verifiable records. Publicly verifiable records. Point C, probably most significantly for our purposes, these genealogies, because of the way that the land was given, the way... Um, where the lambs divided and had to stay with families, they established claims for inheritance. They established claims for inheritance. And you don't need to turn there, but you're familiar, I, I trust, with the story of Ruth. And Ruth marries an Israelite who dies. And so she is looking for a kinsman redeemer. Right? That's, that's the big theme of the book, Kinsman Redeemer. And so Boaz offers to marry her. And the concept is he will raise up her firstborn son for her dead husband. And he brings the inheritance back in to the family. But when Boaz wants to marry her, he first has to go and challenge or ask. There's a closer Kinsman Redeemer. This is all tying into genealogies. This is all tied into who's the closest family relative. And so for matters of inheritance... And legal matters, genealogies are huge. 
And the reason this is a deal for us is Jesus is claiming to be the Davidic heir. He will claim to be the, the heir to David's throne. And so a genealogy is going to be necessary to prove that claim, to demonstrate he, he is David's greater son. That's why genealogies are, are important. Number two, Luke recounts Mary's genealogy. Luke recounts Mary's genealogy. I've got to pause here. What I mean is this. Jesus has two human parents. One is an adopted parent, Joseph. One is a biological parent, Mary. But he has two parents on earth. And so there's two possible lines you'd be going through in the genealogies. And one of the things that the skeptics have noted again and again and again is that Matthew has a genealogy of Jesus, and Luke has a genealogy of Jesus, and quite obviously, they're not the same. What's interesting, Matthew's genealogy goes forward, starting with Abraham, doesn't start with Adam, starts in Abraham, it's in chapter one, works from Abraham all the way to Jesus. Luke's starts at Jesus, works all the way back to Adam. And what's striking is, if you compare Luke and Matthew, from Abraham to David, they match up. Perfectly, match up wonderfully. From David to Jesus, aside from two names, they're absolutely different. They're not even close. And then I'll, I'll see things, you know, books or articles, aha, the Bible has errors. Well, this is one of those things where you just, you gotta marvel at the unbeliever. This is so obviously two different genealogies. It's not even close. It's not as though they sort of line up on this one or two discrepancies. From, Get this, from, from Abraham to David, they, they line up exactly. From David to Jesus, they are totally dissimilar, except for two names that appear midway through. And those may not even be the same people. Um, and so one of the things we've got to do as we study this is how do we reconcile that? How do we, how do we deal with this? Now, it's not as though the church hasn't noticed this before. It's not as though guys like Richard Dawkins stumbled upon um, you know, the Achilles heel of Christianity. No, this is, this is something that the very first century readers would understand. No one reading Matthew and Luke would think these are the same lists of people. And so I think the best explanation and the simplest explanation and the most obvious explanation is that whereas Matthew recounts Joseph's lineage and family line, Luke recounts Mary's. They have different purposes and different reasons, as we will see. So let's just move through this in, in three points. First, son can freely mean descendant. Son can freely mean descendant. The reason I point that out is, in genealogies, it's not uncommon for names to be omitted, generations to be skipped. And if you compare some of the, the earlier names from, say, Adam moving forward with some earlier biblical genealogies, we know that there's been then generations that have been skipped over. And that's perfectly fine. That's completely acceptable. The purpose of the genealogy is to be able to track the line. And you need to be given enough information to do that. But just to give you one example of what I mean, in Matthew 1.1, the book opens, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean Abraham had a son and his name is Jesus, meaning direct one generation physical descent. He's the son of Abraham in so much as he's Abraham's great, 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 you know, however many you have to add in, probably 40 or 50, grandson, right? 
So, no problem there. That's, that's one of the problems sometimes people will throw up is, oh, there's emissions. That's pretty standard practice with genealogies. Son can freely mean descendant. Number point B, and here's the significance of, of Luke and why I believe Luke's giving Mary's genealogy is if you think about it, Luke's narrative to this point has focused significantly on Mary. I mean, think about the roles of Joseph and Mary in the text. What, does Joseph speak in Luke's gospel? No. In fact, whenever Joseph appears, he appears in connection with Mary, and Mary is doing the acting, Mary is doing the speaking. Other than the beginning of chapter 2, where Joseph, being in the house and tribe of, of David, goes up to Bethlehem, that, that's the, the most he comes forward in the text. Whereas we have Mary's Magnificat. We have the angel appearing to Mary. Matthew has an angel, an angelic vision appearing to Joseph. Luke, Luke doesn't tell us that. He's not focused on Joseph. He's focused on Mary. We get the encounter of Mary and Elizabeth. And when the p- parents find Jesus in the temple, they both are there. They're both astonished. And who comes forward and speaks? Mary. Luke is clearly focusing on Mary as one of the primary players in his narrative at this point. It's natural. It seems to make sense then that when he deals with the parents, one of Jesus' parents' genealogies, he gives us Mary's. The other, the other reason I think this makes sense is if you simply shift in the ESV, there is no, by the way, quotation marks and parentheses in, in Greek. So when people translate it, they've got to do the best they can in trying to assume where things go. I think this whole thing gets made a whole lot simpler. If you look at the ESV, verse 23, you see the open parentheses, and it closes after the word supposed. I think if you just move that over two words so that if it closes after Joseph, it, it really just pops out as straightforward and simple. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. Because in the Greek, that word son just occurs once, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, and then it's really the one of Heli, the, the one of Levi, the one of Melchi. And my, my Greek class students can, can verify this. The word son only occurs once, the very beginning. And then from then on, it's just the one of, the one of, the one of. It's clearly understood. Luke is trying to make it clear that that Jesus is not physically a descendant of Joseph. His his gospel's already made that clear. And so he says he was the son thought to be of Joseph, but really, and then he brings in Mary's father's name. And that, that, I think, accounts for why the next... You know, 40 names are completely dissimilar with Matthew. Completely dissimilar with Matthew. He's tracking Mary's genealogy. And what that means, if I'm right, is that the scripture gives us both Mary and Joseph's genealogy. We get both parents of Jesus' genealogy. And then that, that begs the question, well, why? Why would we need that? Well, for one reason, all of us have two parents. It gives us a fuller a fuller tracking of, of Jesus' lineage, but more significantly in point, point C here, these two genealogies establish both Jesus' legal and physical descent from David. Legal and physical descent from David. As Joseph's adopted son, Jesus would stand as the firstborn to fully inherit whatever Joseph had a right to inherit and so on back. So, so Jesus' legal just track me here. Jesus' legal claim to the throne comes through Joseph. It comes through his father, his adopted father. And so establishing Joseph's lineage, establishing Joseph's 
connection to David is necessary for Jesus to be the Davidic king. And so the legal, the legal descent's given in Matthew, which I think is also why Matthew only goes back to Abraham. He, he's not concerned fundamentally with all of Jesus' genealogy. He's, he's tracking within the Jewish nation. But, but Jesus didn't receive any of his biological DNA, for lack of a better term, from Joseph. He, whatever he got, he got from his mother. And so through Mary, we see that he's the physical descendant of David, which is important, as we'll see. He's David's legal heir, but he's also David's physical descendant. And more importantly, I think we'll see as, as Luke tracks the cord all the way back to the wall, Jesus fully and totally shares in humanity, and we see how he fits into the stream of humanity from, from Genesis chapter 1 and God making Adam till now. So the two genealogies provide both the legal and his physical descent from David. Okay, that's all introduction. Now we'll, now we'll dive in. Um, and we'll do communion too. Um, what, what do we get from this genealogy? Well, it's challenging because as I told you that nearly all of the names from verse 24 through verse 31 are, are different from Luke, they're also almost all unknown people. The scripture just doesn't have record of them. And by the way, this is another reason why I, I think the notion that Luke simply f- flubbed it, which is if you, read, if you read skeptics, they just, oh, Luke totally messed this up, which to me is a ridiculous charge. Luke, who up to this point has been absolutely um, scrupulous and in detail-oriented, who we saw in verse 23 is willing to admit when he doesn't know something, is somehow able to perfectly match up the genealogy from, Dave, from David to Abraham. And then notice, notice verse 31. Through whose line does Mary come? Which son of David? Is it Solomon? No, it's Nathan. If, if, if Luke's bluffing, if Luke's trying to forge this, if he's just sort of making it up, how in the world does he miss Solomon? I mean, he's not some insignificant minor king. He's David's son who gets the crown. And yet Luke says through Nathan. It's, it's, it's inconceivable that, that Luke could get from, from Abraham to David perfectly right and then first step out from David, misstep, and choose Nathan. No, he, he's not trying to do that. He's writing a different genealogy. He's writing a different genealogy. So then as we look at this, let's go to point three. And what we learn in looking at Jesus' genealogy is that biblical promises are fulfilled in Jesus' genealogy. Biblical promises are fulfilled. And we're just going to make a couple of stops on our way through here. And again, remember, Luke is writing to Theophilus, somebody who's already heard these accounts. And so there's a sense in which we can read this knowing where the story goes. We can read this knowing the full story, and, and some of these names are going to pop out. Um, so let's, let's make some stops along the way. The first is point A. Jesus fulfills the curse to Jeconiah. Jesus fulfills the curse to Jeconiah. Now, I'm sure that was probably keeping you up at night this week, wondering how in the world does the genealogy of Jesus reconcile the curse to Jeconiah? You probably don't even know what the curse... I, I probably... Well, I, let's not pretend. I didn't remember this until I was studying it earlier this week. But if you'll turn to Jeremiah chapter... Um, Jeremiah chapter 22. 
I'll explain the, the, the difficulty in how this is resolved. Um, there was a king who at various times, he had various sort of nicknames. He was Jeconiah or Kaniah or Jehoiachin. Those are all various renderings of his name. And he was the final king of the northern, um, or one of the final kings of, of the southern tribes before Nebuchadnezzar gobbled up Israel. And he uh, had a very short reign. He reigned for about three months and 10 days. And in Jeremiah chapter 22, God levels a curse against him. Jeremiah 22, verse 30. I'll start in verse 29. O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So because he was wicked, because he did, according to, um, according to 2 Chronicles 36, 9 through 10, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In the spring of that year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon. So he's, he gets to rule for a mere three months and 10 days. And this curse leveled against him is none of his descendants will rule on the throne. None of his descendants will sit on the throne. He has sons. You can read in Chronicles, he has sons. None of them will rule. His, his, uh, his Zedekiah, his, his brother, gets made to be regent by Nebuchadnezzar until he turns on Nebuchadnezzar. So, so here's the promise. No descendant of Jeconiah can be sitting on the throne and be king. And here's the problem. If you, if you turn to, you don't need to turn there, but if you turn to Matthew 1.12, he's in Joseph's family line. You see the problem now? No son, Jeconiah, can ever sit on David's throne. Joseph is a son, or, you know, in that long sense, of Jeconiah. And Jesus doesn't share in that bloodline. What Luke's gospel resolves is, and why it's significant that, that Luke brings Mary's bloodline from David to Nathan as he avoids this entire cursed bloodline. He can inherit the crown, but the prophecy of Jeremiah is fulfilled. No descendant, no son of Jeconiah will sit on the throne. No, no son of Jeconiah will. Jesus is no son of Jeconiah. His bloodline passes through Nathan. And so this, this is one of the significant um, biblical issues that gets resolved through this genealogy. I, I, like I said, I knew this was probably keeping you up at night this week, but it's, it's fascinating how the scriptures fit together perfectly. It's fascinating how a promise made in what, what, what may seem like an obscure place in Jeremiah 22.30 gets perfectly fulfilled. Jesus inherits the crown through Joseph, but his physical descent to David does not come through that line. This prophecy of Jeremiah 22.30 perfectly fulfilled. No, no tension with scripture. So point A, this, this genealogy explains how Jesus fulfills the curse to Jeconiah, how that curse can be kept and not broken. Point B, that also then means Jesus is the legal and physical son of David. Jesus is a legal and physical son of David. If you turn to 2 Samuel 7, 
which is where God makes his covenant with David, the Davidic covenant, the covenant of the throne. I want you to look at it because it's significant what it says. If you remember, David wants to build a house for God. He wants to build the temple. And so he has Nathan, the prophet, inquire of God. And God says no. There's too much blood on David's hands, but God is nevertheless pleased that it was in David's heart. And so God, in turn, says, I'm going to build you a house, David. I'm going to build you a house. And that same play on words for house that exists in English as a physical structure and a dynasty works in Hebrew as well. And so in 2 Samuel 7, we have one of the significant covenants in Scripture, the Davidic covenant. Um, And here it is. Let's pick it up in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But notice what verse 12 says. Not just your descendant, but who will come from your own body. Right? If we don't have this genealogy of Mary, we have no confidence that this promise is kept. Because Jesus can be Joseph's adopted son, But if that's all he is, then he does not come from David's own body. So God gives us Mary's genealogy to confirm the promise to David that one of his descendants, literally one of his own seed, will be this king whose throne will be established forever. Jesus is a legal and physical son of David, which the promise that David demands. God is specific promises David, one of your descendants, someone from your own body will be this king. And so we need Mary's genealogy, her, her pedigree, as well as Joseph's for these promises to be fulfilled. Let me move on a little further in, in, in the genealogy from verse 31 where David is mentioned down to verse 34. We get Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, familiar names. In point C, we see here and we remember that Jesus is Abraham's offspring. Jesus is Abraham's offspring. When God made a covenant, we're moving to another covenant. We're working backwards from the Davidic covenant now to the Abrahamic covenant. I'll just read to you a familiar passage, Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then a few verses later, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And then Paul in Galatians 3.16 gives this clarification. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Jesus is the Davidic heir. Jesus is the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant. Jesus is also the one who fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. And as we're working back through Jesus' genealogy, we're reminded that here is the one who is the fulfillment of what God promised to David. Here is the one who is the fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham. Let's move a little further back. Point D. Jesus is the seed of the woman. 
Jesus is the seed of the woman because we get back all the way to Adam. And after Adam and Eve transgressed and ate the fruit, God cursed them and he cursed the earth and death came into the world. What does he promise the woman? I will put enmity between you and the woman, he says to the snake, and between your offspring, your seed, and her offspring, her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we get back, Jesus is, the, Jesus is the one promised to David. Jesus is the one promised to Abraham. Jesus is the one promised to Adam and to Eve. And all that we see in his genealogy. Point E, Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. And what I mean by that is that's, that's a term that Paul coins in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45 to 49, he says this, speaking, comparing Jesus and Adam. The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the physical that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man is of the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are also those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Here's, here's the point Paul's making, and he develops the same thought in Romans 5 as well. There, there are two men who enter into history who hugely affect humanity. So Adam comes in, and as the head of Humanity, when Adam eats the fruit and Adam sins, all of humanity falls into sin. And just as Adam was made from dust and is mortal, so we share in his mortality and from dust to dust we return. And his actions and his choices and his failure mark us. It's our failure. It's our actions. Paul says in Romans 5, 12, for through one man, sin came into the world and by sin death, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Well, here comes this second Adam. Here comes this one who comes into the world sinless, unmarked by Adam's fall. And he, just like Adam, will do things that significantly define his people. And so through one man's act of righteousness, the many are made righteous. Jesus is the second Adam. He's linked all the way back to this Adam. And we're reminded that just as Adam, our forefather, plunged us into depravity and sin and ruin. So here comes this second Adam who will redeem us and through his obedience we will be made righteous. Point F. Finally, where does this this cord end up at the wall? Son of Adam, verse 38, son of God. Son of God. And when you read that in Genesis, you understand that that just means made of God. But coming right on the heels of the Father's testimony in Luke 3. I, I think it's got to ring in our ears a little differently. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus is Son of Enos, Son of Seth, Son of Adam, Son of God. Here is the one, and this genealogy provides it, who is fully human. We see how Jesus links fully into the human race. Fully. He's a savior not just for Jews. His genealogy goes beyond that. His link to humanity precedes 
Abraham. It goes all the way back to Adam. But he's also the one who is the son of God. Here is the one who is fully divine, fully man. Here is the one who is the father's son in whom he's well pleased. And here is the one who can sympathize with us because he is made like us in every way except without sin. Here is the one who calls God his father, who shares fellowship with him. Here is the one who calls us his brothers and sisters if we turn to him in faith. Now, we're going to enter into a time of celebrating the Lord's table, but in doing so, in doing so, we're going to call the worship team up. We're going to sing, we're going to rain seated, we're going to sing a song in preparation for communion. I to call the worship team, and the ushers up, and I'll pray. Lord God, we, we just pray that you would consecrate our hearts, Lord, so that as we come to this table, we would come worthily, that we would recognize that we have a Savior, we have a high priest, we have a God who sympathizes, who has entered into this world, who has taken on flesh, who has become like us in every way, and yet without sin, without imperfection, that he is our righteousness, that he is our satisfaction for sin, he is our high priest, he is our intercessor, and in him we may boldly become Come before your throne. Oh, Lord God, just help us now to honor you as we commemorate the death, burial, and resurrection of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.